All right, we're just about ready to get started here. Just give it a couple seconds for the stream to catch up. Uh, looks like we're live. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday for Tuesday, May 10th. I'm Ken Rimple. So John Kapadia. And uh, wow, it's been a couple weeks. Uh, we took a breather for a couple weeks because of Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise, which is now over. Um, if you go to our Chariot website, uh, there's a blog. And on the blog, we have a, a quick look back. For anyone who has actually attended ETE, you should have gotten links to view the videos. We will be publishing for everybody else in, I think, July. So you'll have all that access for all these great talks that we had. So if you want to check out what we had speaker-wise, um, we'll have a taste of one of the speakers today in the, uh, after this uh, set of news segments. We have Ashley Williams speaking with us uh, through an interview we did a couple weeks ago. But uh, this kind of covers it. So we had Corey Doctorow fresh off of COVID. Uh, he had COVID right before the show. Had an excellent talk uh, about uh, basically how to make uh, big tech a little more um, egalitarian and uh, to kind of break through some of those big tech walls that are that exist. Uh, and you see each of our developers, some of our, our main people here, including Sujan, weighing in on their favorite talks, which are really, really good. What an awesome uh, conference. Yeah, what do you think of it overall, Sujan? I was. I thought, it was, I thought it was great. I, I wasn't able to attend as many talks as I would have liked, but the ones I did attend were awesome. The Q and A afterwards was amazing. I heard a lot of great feedback from people. Um, the speakers are amazing because you know they're answering a lot of questions on the spot, unrehearsed mm -hmm. or unprepared, and they're sharing their own personal stories and experiences, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, I, and I just noticed the. Uh, you know, I was doing troubleshooting and fun stuff like that, too. I just noticed the community was excellent again this year. We we love the Philly ETE community, and thank you for supporting us and, and you know, being there. Hopefully, this next one we'll do in person. It'll be even better. Um, but I thought it was great. I thought it was excellent. All right. Um, so let's do some news items. I don't have any kind of – oh, I do have one announcement, if I can find it here. There it is. I'm giving a talk tomorrow, so if this thing comes out tomorrow, it's too late. <laughs> but uh, I'm doing my, I'm reprising my next JS Remix Run talk uh, at Philly Tech Week uh, at 10 a.m. tomorrow. So uh, yeah, if you want to hear about how uh, React is going server side, uh, we're getting server side rendering and speeding up, accelerating things. Uh, there are two main frameworks out there that people are using these days: Next JS and Remix Run. Uh, and they have different ways of doing basically almost the same thing, but not really. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about those tomorrow. And hopefully, uh, if you haven't seen ETE, you can join me for free and, and enjoy that. And so we'll put a link in there in the show notes. Okay, so you answered my next question. Is this free to attend? Yeah, it is. It's part of Philly okay. Tech Week. And I think it's all the Philly Tech Week ones, if I remember correctly, is uh, let me just double check. We're going to do it live here. Let's see. Uh, that, that, yep, it's free. It's a free Zoom. Okay. So there we go. Wow. Yeah, excellent. Value for your money. So, all right, let's start off. Um, this is an interesting problem and interesting as in terrifying. Uh, there are two vulnerabilities this week that uh, I, I have uh, kind of highlighted from news. So if you've ever worked in networking, even like 15 years ago, uh, F5 is a very big firewall, load balancer, packet inspection uh, hardware company. And they have these routers uh, that basically sit on the edge of a lot of, well, basically 48 of the 50 Fortune 500 companies, for example, use it. This Ars Technical article comes in from Dan Gooden and discusses this really big IP, big, big IP vulnerability. There's 16,000 of these routers out there that are discoverable online. 
So, and these are the ones that basically send traffic, like they accelerate SSL traffic. So like your actual application servers can be clear text and hook up to an F5 and the F5 uh, big IP machine will give you SSL. So that means if you hack this thing, you can see the clear text back yeah. and forth to your application server, which is fun. Um, if that's the way it's configured. So basically anyone who gets in uh, through the <clears throat> iControl REST interface, uh, they can basically pretend to be an admin. Um, and what they do when they pretend to be an admin is they have full control over the address of the device and everything it can do. Uh, and actually this was given a 9.8 severity rating from uh, uh, somebody, I think from, from uh, Ars Technica here, they're, yeah. they're kind of little, you know, worry uh, meter. And there's a really, come up with that. I don't know. It's probably just like, Oh my God, this is bad. 9.8. <laughs> um, but anyway, there is a Twitter uh, thread uh, with a video that shows exactly how to uh, hack it. So the, the, you know, vulnerability is, is been listed. The exploit has been listed. Uh, and it's basically get this. If you have an empty password with base 64 encoding admin colon, nothing, that is how you hack it. And that's what the base 64 for admin nothing is, I believe. If I remember correctly. Oops. Now we're going somewhere else, which I didn't want to do. Um, but yeah, that YWRTA W26. So they said that uh, they patched this immediately once they discovered it. So I'm sure anyone who has big IP from F5 hopefully has a contract with F5 to get them patched. And hopefully they've gone through and patched as many as they could. Uh, but something to keep in mind is that like these vulnerabilities can happen anywhere in hardware devices, in I, you know, IoT devices, in anything. So, so they could just make REST calls with that admin yep. pull in blank and it would work or they have to exploit something else first to then nope. get to that. Okay. Nope, you just base 64 admin blank and hit uh, base 64 encoded off and you're in. So yeah, that was something interesting. Um, oh, that's that a means, default. So that means someone didn't change the password. Right. But it's or also, they did, but they don't need the password anyway, even if there was a password. They Yeah, it doesn't matter what the password is. Basically it says it's a blank password, so I'm letting you in. Yeah, it's, it's the way the stack, I guess, was put together that they didn't check for an empty password. They just let it through. They didn't check to see if that was an invalid. Yeah, it's not great. So, so that's one. And the second one is another Java crypto bug. Uh, they call this psychic signatures in Java. Uh, Neil Madden has an article here uh, in his blog. And there's a it originally pointed to another article. Where is it on here? No, I'm previewing <laughs> things. Hold on. I'll learn how to type someday. Oh, you know what? We have it in our... I want to bring it up from Slack, too. Hold on. While you're doing that, it makes... It, while you're doing that, it makes me really scared of any financial transactions with bank account information and stuff going through that and someone hacking and reading plain text, which means... Oh, that's not you know, it, <laughs> it, it's a bigger cost, but it's almost like don't trust... Don't trust... Don't trust the internet either and, you know, do your own pre-encryption of data anyway. So right. even if they were to be able to get plain text, it's still encrypted. Encrypted at rest, encrypted in transit. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And even like, yeah, that means that's double the work, but still at least it's encrypted data going across the clear line. Yeah. And that's good too with digital signatures and such. All right. And, yeah. uh, you know, crypto. But speaking of crypto, 
This is another really good one. You'll love this one. So I, I thought this one was really fascinating too. So Oracle Java 15 to 18, and it turns out OpenJDK as well, has a flaw in the ECDSA signature validation. Mm -hmm. uh, it allows digitally signing files and other data as if the organization is legitimate. Now, the reason this happens is because ECDSA, this is according to the register article, which is very good by Liam Proven, um, uh, it, it does a signature based on two values, a value called R and a value called S, and then it takes that plus the hash of the message and the public key of the signer. Well, it turns out the implementation of ECDSA, they never did anything properly when R or S were zero. And so if R or S were zero, it actually accepted it as if it was a valid message, a valid encryption to, to a, a decryption process to, to get the thing and look at it. So the bottom line is that you were able to basically give it zero for one of the keys, uh, for one of the values that it uses for the curve in, in the data for the formula, and off you go. You're all set to go. Uh, and so Thomas uh, Patak here um, <laughs> has a nice Twitter article here too. This has now been patched for Java 17 and 18. Uh, they don't have a long-term support for 16, 17. I'll have to look into seeing what they're doing about that, if there's like a community patch. Mm -hmm. And I believe JDK has it too, but you should patch your Java. Yes, absolutely. And I read this article, but I don't remember the details about how this actually happened. I, either they were converting C++ code to Java or something, and then, oh, there we go. The broader issue here is that Java 15 rewrote their C++ EC DSA in pure Java and broke it. So that's there an is. issue. Yeah. So it, right. So it had been there, but they rewrote it. Exactly. So right. It must have been like calling C methods or something before that. But uh, yeah. So anyway, so that's another one. Um, again, it's been patched, but that doesn't mean you're patched. So the thing is, with the F5 routers, hopefully you've got support and they, they patched it for you. But for Java, you're kind of on your own to patch Java. You know? So anyone who does Java and has Java encryption is using um, you know, that, that encryption, ECDSA encryption, should jump on getting a patch for their VM. Yeah. Sure. What's even scarier is that apparently they made this change and didn't have a test to cover it. Otherwise, it would have got caught. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's really? really scary if you think about it. it. It really, really is. All right. So that's those two. Um, I'm going to jump into this next one. Sorry, I'm, I'm out of sequence. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no worries. This will be a good segue into, I have uh, two links about Project Yeah, as you well. do. Right, right. All right. So I have some on uh, Michael Redlick, who is a good friend of Chariot and a good friend of ETE. He's been here numerous times. He also runs the Philly, sorry, runs the Jersey, uh, North Jersey Java user group. I'm going to get that wrong, Michael. I'm sorry. But he runs a user group that's a very long running uh, users group in New Jersey for Java. Yeah. Um, and so he has a news roundup. He's been keeping track of what's going on for uh, JEPs or Java, uh, you know, changes that are coming down the pike. So there's some changes for, for Project Loom, Panama, Job Runner, and some others. The ones I picked out of this is, first of all, Project Loom has a virtual threads preview. Uh, and it moved out of being uh, proposed to target to now targeted for JDK 19. So we should see some sort of uh, update of the virtual threads preview. Now, virtual threads, threads are easier to use than standard yeah. threads, apparently. I'll and get into more details. Okay, good. I'll, I'll, I'll defer that to you. But the point is, it's moving to targeted for Java 19. Uh, then the next one we have is the pattern matching for Switch. Do you have that one as well? No, I don't have that one. No. Yay! So, <laughs> so the pattern matching. So, so pattern matching is something that Scala has 
uh, and a couple other languages really take advantage of to make things like matching different cases uh, more elegant and easy to do. Um, and well, I don't know about easy to do because it's patterns, so but more powerful. So the third preview of that is going to pr from proposed to target for JDK 19. Uh, this is again part of Project Amber. Uh, and then they're adding a when clause instead of the guarded patterns and switch blocks. So they're, they're kind of cleaning that up. And there's another case. Uh, there's a, they're following this legacy, leg, legacy switch semantics when the value of any selector expression is null. So they'll act the same way as a regular switch would. So there's that. That's interesting. There's also a foreign function in memory API. So before, when you had to interact with things like C, uh, you had to use Java native interfaces. And that's a really uh, complicated tool. Uh, well, apparently, they're going to start considering targeting that for JDK 19. So that's moved to proposed target. Basically, it lets you call native libraries and communicate with native memory on your operating system without writing JNI calls. So that'll be a preview when it gets uh, targeted. Right now, they're considering it for JDK 19. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm really interested in that to see how that, where that goes. That's called Project Panama? Yeah, that, thank you. That's part of Project Panama. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, and then the other thing that I had in here, there's a bunch of other ones, um, is JDK 19 has build 21 available for early access builds. They've done some new stuff. There's a job runner API out there. Um, I have not used it, so I'm not sure much what that is. Red Hat's Quarkus has an update. Hibernate, believe it or not, is still kicking around ORM 6.0.1 final. Uh, and now it has a geography database mapping for native SQL types for Geo. And a SQL XML to support, yike, SQL type XML. Uh, and Java is not dead, folks. It's alive and kicking. You'll, you'll have to rip it from my cold, dead hands. It's true. It's very true. It's, it's definitely out there doing a whole lot. And is the basis for awesome languages like Kotlin. So yeah. especially with the, the way they changed it uh, to make it easier to do virtual methods and things like that. Uh, and then apparently they're still working on a beta release now of Kotlin 1.7, which is the new version of Kotlin uh, that's coming out. So check that out as well. You can subscribe to this. Uh, I believe he has a subscription for this. You can follow it uh, and keep up to date on all your Java news. You want some good news about patent trolls? Uh, there's good news about patent trolls. Are they getting like yeah. they get, Are they getting their their day in court now? Well, here's the thing. This is a funny story. Funny way ha thing happened on the way to the forum. So there's this uh, company out there, a patent trolling organization. <laughs> called Rothschild's Patent Imaging, or RPI. And what they did was they brought a, a, a now this is a Voices of Open Source, so I should say this blog at opensource.org wrote this. They called this a predatory patent lawsuit uh, against the GNOME Shotwell project. So if you've ever used GNOME, they've got a bunch of utilities like a calendar utility and file explorers, and one of them is Shotwell, and it's trying to do some of the same things that a lot of other uh, digital camera management tools does. Well, apparently they said it infringed on their Rothschild 086 patent. At that time, 4,000 4, free and open source members rallied uh, in defense of, the, of uh, GNOME, and they raised $150,000 to fight this. And so in the end, they were able to use that with their lawyers, and GNOME settled with RPI at the time in 2019, or maybe it was 2020 by that time that last, I don't know, but okay. it started in 2019. But uh, they were able to settle with them, and they got a comprehensive free-of-charge license for the patents for all open-source software for anything around this patent. Well, turns out there's this guy out there, uh, and this guy's really cool. Um, his name is McCoy Smith, and he's the founder of OSI. I'm sorry, he's founder of LexPan Law. Uh, and he says in here, I'm going to quote this from the article that was written on opensource.org. 
I've been a patent lawyer for over 30 years and I'm a former U.S. Patent Office patent examiner and a patent bar review instructor, so I'm a firm believer in the patent system. Smith told OSI, the writer of this article through email. So I'm just going to say, uh-oh. <laughs> um, and as someone who's also worked in open source lawyer for over 20 years, I'm also a strong proponent of robust public domain. When I first found out about the lawsuit against Gnome, I read the patent in suit and like many others concluded the patent was invalid. So anyway, bottom line is he uh, requested a reopening of the uh, proceeding. And, and turns out that uh, he says that based on the fact that this wasn't really for any new invention that Rothschild hold, held on to, this should be invalidated. So it turns out the patent office, U.S. Patent uh, and Trademark Office, agreed. And now no one can be sued for any reason uh, for this patent and in any open source projects, period. So basically this patent is dead on arrival. It no longer works. Um, and it should make some organizations think twice about trying to sue for open source for some patents they make up to try to protect against it and make money. So this could be really interesting to see that maybe this is a precedent. Um, that lawyer is going to get a lot of business. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, he's, he's great. So um, I had to look for it. So they have a little open for the public to all to see, see if I get lucky patent control number. Boom. And Forget it. <laughs> Never do anything live, Sujan. I've learned that now. Just now I learned. What's <laughs> you when you're in your car? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I can't drive and do this. Hold on. Oh, yeah. ah! All right, anyway, I'm sitting in my parking uh, in my uh, driveway. Okay, so that's our. Uh, uh, that's my news. Let's go to yours. So let me grab and put one of your links up here. Sure. Streamlit. Okay, talk to me about Streamlit. Um, if you scroll down a little bit, sorry. Um, That's fine. My laptop is actually in the process of dying, so it's, it's better that you have this up. So uh, actually, just keep scrolling down, and I'll. Yeah. So I click here. It's Python. Yeah. So is that right there, you, you want to say? Yeah, go down a little bit. Yeah. Actually, you can leave it there. So um, one of our consultants uh, brought this up to me. It was being demoed at the on the project they're working on. Um, so they saw it during your presentation and reached out to me because it looked really cool. So it's basically writing small Python scripts with this API that Streamlit provides. Um, and you can use pandas and anything else. And you can basically do you use pandas to do all your data ingestion and, and slicing and dicing and analytics. But then you can very easily turn that into visualizations and, and manipulable visualizations like sliders and buttons. You can change parameters. And you can immediately publish a live app. So it's very easy to put something good looking together, put a dashboard out there, put a dashboard someone can interact with and have a very fast turnaround time. It seems really slick. I haven't used it yet myself. So everything I'm saying is based off of um, someone else's comments and reading, reading the website. But I'm definitely actually gonna be trying it out at Chariot to build some dashboards because it just seems super easy to set up and publish for public consumption. Oh, wow, this is really cool. Yeah. So it takes away all the, like you can do this with notebooks as well, right? You can have your interactive notebook and run visualizations, but that's good if you're passing that to another engineer or a scientist and sharing data that way and findings. This is in my mind more about sharing with your management team or your marketing team or just the company in general, and quickly iterating and showing stuff live versus having to set up a lot of stuff on your own. Yeah, the big question I have is pricing on this, but maybe it's free and I have no idea. I believe it's free. Neat. Need. I believe right. I, the local version. I don't know about cloud. Right, right. Okay, um, cool. So if you're interested in, in 
if you've been afraid of like putting things together or you're, you you know, and, and it's like, hey, I need to set up metadata or Apache superset or all these things that require a num number of steps, but you're more comfortable with code and you're comfortable with Python. You're like, hey, I think in code and I quickly want to <laughs> take my work that I'm doing and show my management or show marketing, hey, like, look, this is what we've been working on. Here's some analytics and you can stay in code the entire time. I would definitely suggest looking at this. Yeah, it says all for free here. So maybe yeah. it is completely free. We'll have to check in with you after you play this a little bit and see what you yeah. think in a real world. Definitely. That's very cool. All right. Let's go into your more on Project Loom. It yeah. seems like you have some some details yeah. there. If you can uh, actually, so if, if I posted another link, an Oracle link that has more details, oh, okay. um, yes. I think we'll start with that. Uh, hold on. I'm learning. That link. I feel like I'm remote controlling you. It's like, Alexa, Ken, scroll down. I'm sorry. I cannot do that. Okay, here you go. <laughs> so <laughs> if you scroll down, and, I, and I'll mention where to where to pause. <coughs> Excuse me. Keep going down. Keep, go, um, keep going. Keep going. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, a little bit more. Okay, stop right there. Perfect. There um, so for folks that have done a lot of multi-threaded programming in Java, um, I mean, Java provides good constructs around multi-threading, um, understanding the concurrency model and the memory model, understanding how to use locks, how to yep. deal with critical sections, how to deal with data races and, 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 think, and deadlocks is a lot of work. And it's not <coughs> immediately obvious what things could go wrong. <coughs> Excuse me. So anyone who's done that programming has probably hit cases where an unexpected deadlock occurs or a race condition occurs they never expected to because... So much of the code depends on how, how the compiler and the processor execute the actual instructions and on what core they get uh, executed on, what order they get executed on, what memory they see, whether they're seeing a cached value in the processor cache or they're going back to RAM to get the latest live data. So there's so many different things that could happen because of that, because what's unintuitive to a new programmer is that the order that you write your instructions in is not necessarily the order that your, your code actually gets executed on in, in, in the processor because the compiler takes your code, um, you know, breaks it down into smaller instructions. It has some instructions that it uses that your higher level language gets mapped to. And then that gets built on native code, which runs on the processor. And in all those steps, things can go out of order, um, mainly for things like optimizations. So your code gets optimized in ways you don't realize. There's a little guy in your computer doing really cool stuff that, you know, uh, makes things run faster. So anyway, it can lead to a lot of crazy situations. Those threads are mapped directly to OS thread. So today a Java thread is mapped to an OS thread. An OS thread is a little bit heavyweight structure, right? It has OS level constructs and data. Um, switching from one thread to another is a costly operation at the OS level. Um, those context switches take time. And uh, therefore, what that ends up meaning is you can only create a certain number of threads before you max out the number of threads the OS can handle. Um, mm -hmm. So you're limited by your OS and the computer architecture. Um, what Project Loom proposes to do is an idea that's not new. It's actually an old idea that Java has had, had, had thought of way back in the day, or kind of green threads. Green so, threads, I used those years ago, yeah. Exactly. And they're called fibers now, I guess, in today's parlance. But idea being that, and, and, and Java's calling them virtual threads. So we have tons of different names for the same thing. Um, so virtual threads um, are purely in the JVM. They're not mapped to OS threads. So 
you're not dealing with the OS, telling the OS, hey, switch my thread to now this thread running. Um, it's purely handled by the JVM and the JVM process. Uh, and what that means is they're lighter weight, faster to switch, less data that has to be context switched and managed. Also, um, you can use Java, uh, the executor service, you can use Java thread schedulers. So okay. what that means is that you're not asking the OS to do the scheduling. It's all within the JVM. So it's, you can have a lot more control over how your threads get executed and when they get executed. Uh -huh. uh, so what Project Loom wants to do with this is one, make it easier to build much more higher performance servers, for example. So their, their goal is a, we wanna move away from tens of thousands of threads to millions of threads is one thing. So increase the scalability factor a lot. And for what I'm reading is that a lot of existing Java code will be able to take advantage of this. So this will be compatible. It won't be hard to upgrade your code to use it. It's not gonna break anything and you'll be able to, for all intents and purposes for, for free. And we know what free means in computer science, but free yeah. is scale up your threading a lot. Um, Creating them is really easy, thread virtual, start virtual thread, and you can pass it a, a lambda. So you're passing a lightweight lambda to start threads. Um, what I won't get into here, I need to read more of the article and explore, is um, they're doing virtual threads. They're going to be adding continuations. So you'll be able to suspend at a oh, specific nice. point in the code. So you're almost getting to the point of like, you know, lightweight threads, code routines that uh -huh. you can use higher level constructs to coordinate data and, and work between threads versus relying on locks in the OS to wow. do it. Um, so I think That's there's awesome. a lot of potential benefits here. And the other thing that Loom wants to do is uh, tail call elimination, which means, for example, for pure functional programming, you can write natural algorithms that are recursive that uh -huh. if, if you can take advantage of tail call optimization, they'll be able to eliminate that and turn it from a, um, what do you call it? A stack bait. You can unroll the recursive from a stack-based operation to basically being purely in the heap. Is that similar to the way, I, I know like uh, Lisp, for example, there was a concept of tail call recursion. It, it is similar to that. So it's it's gonna be able to get us to the point with, where we can kind of do that kind of thing without the same kind of pain we have in the Java VM That's now correct. doing that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So All right, lots well, of good stuff in that article too. There's tons of examples. There's, there's uh, kind of talking through how to do things and then some unexpected behavior that can happen if you don't understand how it works. Yeah. Nice. Cool. All right. Neat. All right. Well, that's our news, right? I think that's everything mm -hmm. in our news. Yeah. Okay. So here's what we have in store for you. So we had a talk by Ashley Williams. I'm just trying to find it in here because I had it open and then of course I closed it. Uh, but Ashley Williams had a talk on Rust uh, for us this year at Philly ETE. And um, I'll just not do this right now. Uh, nope. Sorry. Forget it. I'm moving on. Um, doesn't matter. We're going to see the talk. But before we see the talk, let me explain what she did. So she had a talk on why you should be using Rust, um, kind of going through the reasons and the benefits of, of using Rust as a programming language. Um, we were going to podcast with her before ETE as kind of a teaser for ETE, but then we couldn't make it scheduled, didn't line up. So we did it after ETE, just a couple of days later. And the cool thing was we had the benefit of knowing what not to talk about. So we didn't like duplicate the whole talk. Uh, and we were able to kind of take it in different directions. So you're kind of getting an adjunct. So if you've watched Ashley's talk, or even if you haven't watched it, it's a nice talk to kind of put up against it as like some additional material that'll help you shed some light on her.
their background, what kinds of things are challenges that go to, to managing the Rust ecosystem, um, things like that. So I think it's a really uh, interesting uh, interview. I think you'll find a lot of use for it. So that's it. So we're going to roll that interview coming up. And otherwise, we'll see you in a couple weeks. And uh, talk to you later. Thanks, everyone. Thanks on Double Ken. Ashley Williams, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, I know we just had uh, emerging technologies for the enterprise. We uh, had you speak about Rust, and thank you for doing that. Um, I wanted to kind of talk around kind of the edges of Rust itself, uh, since people can watch your talk when it when it goes live. I don't want to completely duplicate the talk itself. Uh, totally fair. <laughs> Though I'll but, admit, uh, there's so much in Rust that, and I think yeah. I even say this in the talk, but like each topic itself could probably be multiple talks. <laughs> right, and I have a few things I wanna dig into. So some of it might feel like it's a little bit of replacement of it, but um, I guess the first thing is, um, when did you discover Rust itself? Like how did you kind of go into that community and what got you hooked? Yeah, um, so it's probably worth mentioning that I have been in the open source world for a reasonably long time at this point. Um, like when I started teaching myself to program and I'm self-taught, uh, my degrees in philosophy and neuroscience, not computer science, I was convinced that I wouldn't be sitting at a computer for my job for my life, but here we are. Um, I think <laughs> compute. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyways, uh, so I'd started out in my very first programming job was actually teaching programming. I taught Ruby, then I was like, oh my gosh, this JavaScript thing is happening. And in the moment when all the Rubyists were like, JavaScript's not cool, I was like, I don't care if it's cool, it's gonna be really important. So we should teach the yeah. students it. And so I started getting into JavaScript and uh, that was right around when Node started happening. So I was like, we've got server-side skills from Ruby, this JavaScript thing is happening. I dove just like head first into Node. And I love the technology. I was primarily teaching. Um, and one of the things I started noticing was just like this whole idea of like, what is an open source community? Uh, and what mm -hmm. should community dynamics be like? And at the time, there was some frustration, I guess I'll leave it at, with the Node community. And so I did a lot of work there. And that was very difficult. But as I was doing that work, there started being rumblings of, hey, there's a new kid on the block, it's Rust, and they really care about community. And I was like, huh, I wouldn't know how to start writing an operating system if I tried. I have no idea what systems programming is, but I love teaching and I love technology that helps people do stuff they thought they couldn't do before. And I was like, all right, let me check out this Rust thing. And uh, I loved it. It was really exciting. I'd always loved exploring like what I would call weird languages. Like I had taught myself Erlang a couple of years before that, not to be weird an language. Erlang developer, but because like that translation exercise mm -hmm. reveals so much about what programming can and cannot be. I feel like it expands your imagination of things. So I started learning Rust and I was like, this is really cool. And I started working uh, with my partner on this toy operating systems project called Intermezos. Because I was like, all right, systems programming, operating system, like, let's let's just try. We did like a test-driven um, VGA driver for an operating system. And oh, that was super cool. Too. 
Yeah, it was super difficult. And I had to write some assembly, which I had never done before. And, you know, people talk about bad error messages. Bad huh. error messages. But I actually, so what I ended up doing was giving a talk at the very first Rust Fest. And Rust Fest is the uh, kind of traveling um, non-US like Rust conference. They kind of do events in Asia, Europe. I don't know if they've done one in Africa yet, but maybe. Um, anyways, they've, they've done a ton of, ton of conferences and I spoke at the first one, which was in Berlin and I gave a talk on this operating system project, really mostly like, a if you thought you couldn't write operating systems, like you can, cause I did. And look at me, and I actually made a mistake and, uh, didn't expand the length of a buffer when I was like changing it from hello world to hello rust fest. And it, mm -hmm. I had been talking about how error messages are fantastic developer experience. And it gave me this horrible error message and people thought I had staged it. <laughs> but it was actually just a mistake I had made. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, and then at that Rust Fest, they had the very first Rust Bridge. And if you're familiar with Rails Bridge, um, it's kind of this uh, workshop that's designed to go alongside an event. And it's for anybody who hasn't done that before um, to kind of get them going in it. So then they can go to the event and like feel like they really know what's going on. And I had started an initiative like that for Node called Node Together. So I went and I was like, okay, these folks really like Rust, but a lot of them hadn't taught before. And so I was like, oh my gosh, let's, I want to work together. Like, let's work on this. And so I started getting involved in Rust Bridge and there's much more that comes after that, but that's kind of the start. <laughs> okay, cool. And, and so I just, boy, talk about no time like the present. I opened up a Rust tutorial today. What time is the interview? Noon. So, <laughs> but I wanted to, I mean, I've seen a little bit of it before, but I want to just, you know, kick the tires on Rust in an IDE. Um, so there's a nice little tutorial on the Rust website. And by the time I was like, you know, finish with the simple random number generator guesser game and yep. started playing around with packages. I installed like uh, the Rust analyzer and stuff on, on uh, you know, the tooling on IntelliJ. First I was in Visual Studio Code, then I switched over to my favorite, which is IntelliJ. And man, so, so I think you'd mentioned in the talk something about like, some people will say Rust is hard to learn, but I have not seen a more helpful compiler. Um, it basically tells you, in almost polite terms, like, you know, this is not supposed to be reassigned because you did this wrong. It has nice, really good descriptions about things, like you're saying. So yeah, I was gonna say I gave a shot to Esteban Cooper, and I'm I have to continue to. Yeah. Um sufficiently empathetic compiler is kind of the rallying cry of Rust developers, and we feel really strongly about it. Um, and so yeah, I mean, like, as far as batteries being included, like you get like 800 little helpers along the way with Rust. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the reasons, and I didn't get into this too much in the talk, so it's great to talk about this now, is I think one of the reasons people really struggle with Rust is that Rust has its own way of doing things. And so if you come from a language where you have built kind of like a view of the world and like how the world should be. And like, this is how you write things that are fast. This is how you write blah, blah, blah. Um, and you come to Rust and you hold that original view you had very rigidly, you can have a really rough time in Rust. Uh, so one of the questions I get like all the time is like, how do you know if you're writing idiomatic Rust? How do you know if you're writing fast Rust? 
And one of the things that I know I at least felt when I was learning and I've just seen play out again and again is like, how much are you fighting the borrow checker, right? How much is the compiler going like, this is just not like, when you start getting into a piece of code where how you're writing the program is just like a constant battle with the compiler. What I like to tell people is, is like, instead of just continuing to fight, like a lot of people will start, you'll, the error messages are great, but you can dig yourself into a hole where things start getting really weird, right? Much like any, I think, programming language sure. edge cases are complicated. Mm -hmm. But you can dig yourself into a hole and people will find these things and be like, all right, well, I really, really, really want to do it this way. How do I get Rust to do it this way? And what I tell people is you're going to have a much better time with Rust if you go, this is the problem I need to solve. How are, what are the different ways I can approach it? And like, okay, maybe my original approach was, was not the right one. Cause Rust isn't closing doors on you. Like there's a way to get it done. But especially if you're coming from garbage collected languages, very heavy OO languages, and you mm -hmm. try and use those patterns that you're used to, it's going to be brutal. One of my favorite keynotes from RustConf um, is by a games developer. First name is Catherine. I forget what her last name is. But she talks about developing games in Rust. And she talks about how a lot of those original, very OO patterns um, can cause like a lot of struggle in writing in Rust. And she talks about kind of shifting your mindset to writing games using an entity component system. And there's other paradigms, but the idea is that you might have to kind of change how you think the universe works in order to have a great time with Rust, depending on what you're writing. And I think the more flexible you are in that viewpoint, like the better time you're going to have. And so I actually, people used to think it was ridiculous that I was teaching people who had never programmed before Rust. Um, but it, it was not nearly as difficult as I think people believed it to be because they didn't have these underlying assumptions that can often steer you in the wrong direction. And it's not as cryptic as like Kernighan and Richie C for a beginner. <laughs> you know, when I started programming, I think well, I, I should say when I started programming something that resembled business programming anyway, uh, <laughs> in the early nineties and I, I hit, uh, I hit C and I look at it, this is going to take me way too long to get anything done because I'm not that smart. Um, I mean, everyone has some level of smart, but I, well, I, I don't know. I, I, wasn't and I didn't get being smart. I think it's more mm -hmm. about like, to a certain extent, how much how much time you have and like what yeah, layer right. of abstraction is interesting to you or you are incentivized to be interested in. Yeah, um, right, right. I don't know. I I definitely don't believe anybody has a certain level of smart, I guess. It's well, very I was, I'm obviously being silly, <laughs> being silly. But but at the same time, you're absolutely right. It was, there's a business problem in front of me. I want to solve it. Does the language or the tool meet me at that level where I can get yep. stuff done? without like saying, I need another six weeks. <laughs> like, right. I need another six weeks, another five weeks, another eight weeks. Because You have to reinvent the universe thing. before you can solve the problem. Boil <laughs> the earth. Yeah, yeah, boil, yeah. boil the oceans. Yeah, <laughs> boiling the earth is much worse than boiling the oceans, I find. <laughs> Gotta be a lot hotter. Um, I feel like there's a climate change comment in here somewhere. <laughs> there must be, yeah, I think it's coming out. Um, 
So, all right. So kind of veering into this territory of like, you know, why Rust kind of uh, is, is ultimately more user um, partnering, so to speak, than like a, a other, some other languages. It seems like a lot of the ideas that Rust has, and this is with every language, there's a lot of things that kind of grow up around each other in different languages, right? You, yeah. I look at Scala and then I look at Rush, uh, Rush. <laughs> I, I look at Rust and Neil Peart and I see like, okay, um, I see some innovation that kind of started with Scala-like languages and then kind of went in its way, like the pattern matching, for example, beautiful, but also comes from a lot of other languages. How does the Rust core team get their inspiration for what to put in the language? And, and also counter to that, how do they keep things out that make it a horror show if you're not careful? <laughs> so I think the first thing I'll say is that that is not exactly the role of the Rust core team. So Rust okay. has really kind of, I think, very unique governance. And I think it's it's one of the- Yeah, let's get into that a little bit strength. then. Yeah, so Rust has very distributed and delegated governance. And so the core team sits kind of on top, but the goal of the core team is basically to kind of coordinate otherwise fully autonomous teams um, across the project. So for language features, for example, we have a language team and they work very closely with what is another autonomous team, which is the compiler team. Uh, and so they are like fully delegated to be in control of those things. Um, and so how they work, I mean, the thing that you're describing, I think is the capital H hard problem of like building any product, like mm -hmm. at all. Um, and I think Rust's hypothesis, and I say it's a hypothesis because it's a living project and we'll like, see how it does. It is still young in many ways. Um, the hypothesis is that if you get a diverse enough set of people in the room, you can kind of have that wisdom of crowds and be able to, you know, learn from other communities, learn from previous experience, um, and be able to like use many different perspectives to like come to a great decision. Um, and so like the way language features happen is the same way all major decisions happen in the Rust programming language, which is through the RFC or request for comments process, uh, which now that we are no longer a very small project can be very intense and involve conversations with a lot of folks. And so I also mentioned that I think how the language team has worked and how just major decisions in the project in general have worked um, has worked great for a while, but as we, we've hit an inflection point a while ago, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's something that I know a lot of the teams are paying attention to. Uh, and the language team in particular is really leading the way in innovation there. I know they've gone from just RFCs to major change proposals, um, and kind of reviewing things there. So, and trying to be, you know, more public and transparent about how they work to get to solicit more opinions. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. This is a hard thing to do well. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's fun to watch all these languages kind of grow up around each other. Cause I mean, I even go back, you know, when I was working with, with uh, Java years ago, I found this, 
silly dynamic uh, Java tool called Bean Shell, right? This is many, many years ago. And Bean Shell is one you could like invoke and you'd have a shell into like expressions in the running VM. And then they had Groovy in the Groovy shell and Ruby came along as a dynamically typed language. All these things grew up around each other. So there was like the closures and lambdas and stuff like that, the, you know, passing functions into thing, uh, things world. Um, so that's why I just, I see all these things grow up and it's kind of fascinating. Yeah. And I mean, I would be remiss to not say like a lot of people are like, oh, Rust is so great. And I'm like, we had the benefit of coming much later. <laughs> yeah. And we, Prime movers have a hard instead time. Instead of inventing things from first principles, there was an immense amount of like learning from others, I think, both from academia and from industry, which I think also really helped. Um, but like, for example, Yehuda Katz did a ton of work on the tooling and he was prolific in the Ruby and JavaScript communities. Yes, so was. there's mm -hmm. a lot of borrowing for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not only in the code, but also in the code. <laughs> ah, yes, no, the, the yeah. puns will continue. <laughs> yeah, I can't stop myself. I apologize. It's part of the title. No, it's okay. Show. It's very rusty of you. Uh, the, the pun game in the community is truly next level. It's strong. I mean, yeah. you know about the mascot? No. So See, this people is a... who write Rust are called mm -hmm. Rustations. I've heard of that. And our yeah. mascot is a crab, and the crab's name is Ferris, as in like of or pertaining to iron. Anyway, yeah. So oh. It starts there and <laughs> just keeps going. <laughs> it just keeps on going. It's like, it's like the Python team with all the Monty Python references, yeah. Um, so, okay, so another thing. Um, one of the things I thought was interesting about Rust when I was looking through some of the documentation is that when you do things uh, where you're running into bug mode, it's really kind of helping you. Like I looked at, for example, the with numbers and underflow overflow, that it's going to let you know during debug mode that something's happening there. But in runtime, uh, when you go into production, it's a little different. Um, can you talk a little you bit about debug mode? What do you mean? You mean when you compile not it? building for production? Yeah. So like when you're uh. Like you built with debugging into it, I guess is my. It's the best I can explain with my extremely limited <laughs> understanding right now. But I mean, are there, are there other things that happen kind of when you're not built for a release that uh, Rust helps you out? Um, or is that just a tangential thing that happens to happen for like numbers and stuff like that? Well, I guess I. I'm trying to think of if there would be any specifics I would call out. I mean. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the it's the kind of just classic trade-off, I think, between, you know, compiling for debug and production where, you know, optimizations, when you're optimizing for both size and speed, you're going to eliminate a lot of information. Mm -hmm. um, and in debug, you're able to keep some of that information around so that you can end up having much better error messages. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it was something about if you underflow i forget if it throws an error or not during debug but i know in in when you're in release mode or whatever you're saying when you're building for release, release yeah it does it use complement math so it's like it's not going to blow up your code it's just going to give you some odd results you weren't expecting for example so um i thought that was kind of an interesting choice um what is Russ's story about variables and mutability i like how by default everything is immutable so, but there's certain rules that they add in addition to that, right? Just to keep you from making really big mistakes. 
Yeah. So, I mean, this, this really jumps into the type system and, and a lot with how, you know, lifetime and borrowing works. Uh, I gave the example in the talk of if I lend my book to you, right. And I want to read it later. Um, I shouldn't let you burn it. Uh, and so part of the reason that mutability matters is like whether or not something has a mutable or immutable reference is going to be important for those guarantees that we make. So, you know, if I recognize that something has a mutable reference, we need to guarantee that it only has one. Um, and if it has any immutable references, you know, making sure that it doesn't have um, any mutable ones. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about cargo and crates, specifically around crates. And as you mentioned, you've been in the NPM community. I've been doing yep. a lot of stuff in the JavaScript side, so I'm dealing with NPM all the time. Um, and before that, I did a lot. And I mean, of I was going to say, I don't know if you remember package management in Ruby, but I actually ended yeah, up on Jam the, the core team of Sinatra strictly because I was just managing the gem file for different Ruby mm -hmm. So Yeah. So my question is around governance around that. So, for example, in the in the, the Java world with Maven, you know, everything goes to the central repository. You have to go through all sorts of checks and balances and make sure everything's up and running. And then in the NPM world, someone can like check in a version of Faker that uh, has a silly message in it and blows up everyone's code that ever used Faker. What uh, what is the governance around uh, Crates IO? So when you governance is a very interesting word here because um, it can speak both to like automated policies and then uh, kind of what you could call social policies. Mm -hmm. So uh, technically speaking, um, you need to have a cargo toml. The cargo toml needs to have the appropriate fields. Uh, and it, um, cargo will check to compile that code before it publishes them. Uh, beyond that, there are no automated tests. Okay. I'm actually not familiar with what Maven may or may not do. That's very interesting. It's more of a governance by the repo owners, you know, so they, they give people the ability to publish based on like, you know, agreements, essentially open source contributor agreements and things like that, if I remember correctly. And then it depends on who's running the repository. So I guess it's similar, like a um, honesty policy, so to speak, with the library maintainer. Have there been any issues with cargo and things being like unpublished or, um, has that kind of stuff happened more? You can like say left pad. It's okay. Left Funny story. I worked at NPM during left pad and was really central to the unpublished policy getting written. Oh. Um, that was something that was very important to me. So, um, cargo, uh, I would say the immutability guarantees of the crates IO registry, um, are significantly higher than NPMs, um, though not 100%. I think it's important to just kind of recognize that like any registry, like that is any community registry that is on the internet today is going to necessarily have some mutability. Uh, mm -hmm. People change their names. That's a big one. Um, DMC takedowns are a thing. Trademark mm -hmm. is a thing. There's and. I'll put a little warning in here that trademark does not 
work the way most people think it does in these oh, yeah. situations. Oh my gosh, I could give a whole talk at Trey Park. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer though. Um, but uh, what you can do is you you can do your best to um, you know make it as immutable as possible. So uh, you know, originally in NPM, you could publish a package. It could be up for like three years, have five million dependent packages. You could just take it down. Yeah. Um, so that is not the case um, in Rust. Uh, we have something called yanking, which, if I recall correctly, comes from the Ruby world, but there's other other places that have that. And so, I mean, this is probably potentially getting into too much detail, um, but Cargo has a Cargo lock file similar to the package lock file. And what mm -hmm. yanking does is it's going to remove that version from like public search results. It's not going to let somebody put that version in a new cargo toml and have it downloaded but if that version is in your package lock file like that file is still going to exist up in the registry and it's not going to break your code but it will print a warning and encourage you to update it seems like a reasonable middle road between both you know where it's yeah. too restrictive but then you can't do a takedown for example and you legally have to so um, yeah, you know, I will say, well, kind of depending on the DMC takedown, whether or not it's a gank or if it's a full pull, like, mm -hmm. it's very Thinking interesting. Uh, I suspect yeah. that that would not be a yank. Yank is like a tool that we give in place of an unpublish mm -hmm. um, to end users. Uh, now, I've described yank in probably the most, like, naive possible usage. There are, like, all package management stuff ways that it gets complicated. <laughs> um, it's yeah. not, not necessarily a perfect solution, but I do think a better one. Uh, I will offhandedly say that I think one of, when I was doing the unpublished policy for NPM, one of the most important, I did a survey of like, why do people want to unpublish? Like what, what, what is the point? Why, why do you want to unpublish this so badly? And in general, it really had to do with people wanting to remove their name from like abandoned or like otherwise like not used projects or. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the original solutions, at least when I was at NPM was like, okay, what if we came up with a way that you like donate the package to like, like put an NPM user there um, or, you know, move it somehow. Like people don't want to delete the code. They just don't want it showing up on their profile anymore. Um, but I mean, that is also a very complicated thing. And I mean, we see this exact same thing in the Rust ecosystem. There's a lot of like really promising projects that folks are using. And then that original author needs to step away. There's no one to step in to take it. Yeah. What do you do? Um, and how do you transfer it to a trusted entity and not like a not trusted one? Um, I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of this boils down to the fact that like we haven't figured out how to sustain open source commons yet <laughs> in a way that's reasonable. That's a super big problem. Um, but yeah, it is very interesting. But at least I'd say with with, with Crates.io, again, learning from learning from the past, uh, it's it. I would be less worried <laughs> using Crazy.io um, than than other other community package ecosystems. 
So you're working, oh, I, I want to ask this first. So WebAssembly, I know you had looked at WebAssembly and did some, am I correct saying you did some work yes, on WebAssembly? I, I was very involved in WebAssembly for, for a while. So, all right. So let me throw this at you. So where is WebAssembly today? I, I know that you can take code, for example, you can take C code and stuff like that and transpile Doom onto the browser, for example. <laughs> Crazy stuff like that. Doom, um, AutoCAD, you know, yeah, those, those right. big demos. Yep. Mm -hmm, but like take up the memory in your browser and crash your computer, all that fun stuff, or whatever, or maybe not. Where is Rust in the WebAssembly game? And have you seen some good and novel or interesting uses of WebAssembly through Rust yet? Or is it still, yes. we're all still trying to figure it out? Oh my gosh. Um, so, yeah. And I would say in around the like 2018, to like 2020, honestly, still to today, like I think Rust has one of, if not the best WebAssembly story compared to a lot of the other competing languages. Um, so <laughs> one of the things that I think is very interesting about WebAssembly, and you'll note that a, a new second version of the WebAssembly spec, WebAssembly 2.0, landed about a week ago, I think. Um, WebAssembly was this technology that I feel like kind of always had this identity crisis. Like even in the early days, it was like WebAssembly, neither web nor assembly. Um, and it was like, <laughs> <laughs> like, and everyone was like, of course, like that's cool, like naming, it's hard, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but like the original vision, I think of WebAssembly was really like, there had been this attempt, like how can we get something more with a systems per like performance kind of characteristic in the browser, right? And so mm -hmm. it was like, in a way it was like, how can we have a standards-based like flash? Like how can we have something like this? And people had been attempting to do these things for years. They're every, they're large companies all had different attempts at this. And oh, so yeah. when Rust was originally, um, kind of talking about its WebAssembly story. And this is when I was participating in that. Uh, it was about, okay, how can we build a tool chain so that people can supercharge their JavaScript? So a lot of the tooling here was, how can we make the experience of writing Rust fit into the software development lifecycle that JavaScript developers are the most familiar with? And I'm, I'm gonna take a moment here. WebAssembly interop with JavaScript right. in a seamless way. And there's so many technical considerations for that. Uh, and I could go deep into it. And I think there's still a future for that. But what mm -hmm. I'll say is I think the timing, and so I worked on the WebAssembly tool chain uh, for Rust for a while. And then I moved over to, um, I, I went to work at Cloudflare on their serverless edge product workers. And I mm -hmm. think, I think the rise of cloud computing, cloud native, or whatever you might say, and kind of serverless and the edge, I think alongside some kind of fatigue with client-side JavaScript and spas, like the idea was like, do we really want like a fat client that's just faster? Or do we want cloud computing where the network lag is less? Like right. where we can have easier ops. And so I actually talked about this with great sadness, but I think I've come to make peace with it in my life is I think WebAssembly is a cloud compute technology. Uh, it's where the money for WebAssembly is right now. The money for supercharging your JavaScript and browser 
not so much. I mean, browser funding is a whole complicated other topic. Um, but I think with WASI, uh, which is the WebAssembly system interface, um, and there's some just really fantastic things. Fastly's got a really cool kind of runtime thing going on. Um, you're seeing a lot of different companies kind of coming out with what if, what if we use WebAssembly as a Docker replacement? Mm. And so that's, that's what I think you're really seeing today. And I think that that is where WebAssembly is, is probably going to be at least for the next couple of years. If I was going to interrupt you because, and that's rude of me to do, so I apologize. You're fine. But I just went. I'm sorry. I, I can't like, get out of the way of the train. I have so many feelings about it, but yeah. <laughs> well, I just laughed because when I first got involved in Java, Java was the big, you know, hey, browser, you're going to get so cool because you got this little gray window that shows up and does nothing for 45 seconds and then throws an exception in your console and maybe shows a button, you know. And it was its goal originally was to be JavaScript's best buddy, or JavaScript was to be Java's best buddy. And there's a symbiosis, and Java kind of grew out and immediately away from that into server-side programming, and we never look back. Well, some people look back and try to create <laughs> Java FX, and I'm not so sure about that. But um, yeah, and swing and all that stuff before it. So it's it's interesting to see like another technology grow out of the browser and the web, only to find a much bigger home, because the ultimate goals of word write efficient, fast. Um, you know, safe software, which is kind of interesting. You know, the, with Java, it was the garbage collection piece, which was a safe software and running on many platforms was its goal there. Um, yeah, I mean, WebAssembly and garbage collection is a very spicy space right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> for a long time, like I used to say like WebAssembly, like the reason I was really excited about WebAssembly in the browser was it's performance care performance characteristics were just significantly more predictable, largely due to its lack of garbage collection. Now, its lack of garbage collection caused the idea of WebAssembly being like a compilation target for like any language in the universe, um, while still remaining small and fast, like was kind of impossible. Cause it's like, oh, okay, yeah. now you have to like bring your own garbage collector. And that really, really stymied, I think, WebAssembly adoption. Because yeah. it kind of was like, okay, you can use Rust, you can use C, C++. There was assembly script, which was kind of like a complete rewrite of a language to kind of like look like a subset of TypeScript. Um, hmm. And those were your choices, or you had to bring your own garbage collector. And that, that as somebody who was trying to like pitch WebAssembly at the time, that really slowed people down. Seems like there's a lot of dragons in that, you know, lots of really weird, strange edge conditions that would be thorny and hard to deal with, I would think. Yeah, I mean, that isn't really the worst part of it. I mean, I know at least with Cloudflare workers, like like I was hired, they were like, make WebAssembly work on workers, and it's a V8 isolate, so like WebAssembly already worked. But the idea was like, okay, if I want to compile Go and put it in a worker, I got to bring a whole bunch of Go with me. Um, I don't fit anymore. And the whole point of using WebAssembly was that it was small. So right. that's, right. and like, you know, having to bring that along with you, it's just, it's a ton of bloat. So trying to figure out how to manage that um, was very complicated. And then that's not even to dig into like the performance characteristics going across the boundary um, of like, when you're dealing with, you know, 
strings or something like how memory gets handled there, um, passing that mm -hmm. from say JavaScript to WebAssembly without having uh, garbage collection. It it that gets complicated and gets can end up with performance characteristics that you don't want. <laughs> you were, uh, and I've looked at some of your, your references in your bio um, that you're the author or a lead maintainer a number of different tools. So um, one of them was um, Cloud for Wrangler. It sounds like that was one of the things you were working with there. Um, what, what, how did you get involved in doing some of these other tools like Wasm Pack and Cargo Generate and stuff like that? Um, was yeah. that kind of like one of the ways you got started working with Rust was writing utilities or these were as you started working with it, you saw we really need a tool for this and let me jump in and, and build something. Yeah. So, I mean, I would say, I mean, the way I really got involved in Rust was teaching Rust. And then I think inevitably when you teach a lot of people, you kind of understand like what are the spots that trip people up? What are the repetitive spots? Yeah. How can you glue stuff together? Um, so cargo generate for example and i i still to this day hope that we figure out a way to like kind of build something like this into cargo is the idea that a lot of people love starting with kind of a demo or a scaffold and we actually built this and by we i really mean kat marshan was the primary author of this but this idea uh in npm where like create react app, I think kind of started it, but it was like, I, there's like a template. I want to use the template. Um, and instead of just using Git to like clone it down and then like change it all, like what if just my tooling, like let me specify that and it just kind of scaffolded it out for me. Uh, and so that's what Cargo Generate does. And it really came out of building a bunch of things and like having like template galleries and things. I mean, like, how can we connect these two? Uh, and like Wasmpack, for example, like uses Cargo Generate under the hood to like initiate like a hello world project for you if you were to run like Wasmpack in it or Wasmpack new, I forget which one it is. Um, so yeah, I, it, it really came out of teaching and having an empathy for that beginner experience and trying to think of like, how can we get people out of their own way? You know, let them focus on the stuff that, that they care about. <laughs> right, right. If someone's starting out, um, it seems like there's a decent amount of getting started stuff on the Rust language site, but what are some good resources for people learning Rust? Is it on the Discord community? Is that a good place to hang out? Uh, I saw there was a beginners forum there that looked pretty yep. lively. Yeah, so I mean, I think it depends on how you like to learn and also where you're coming from. So one of the things that I love about Rust, and I, I made this slide for like a RustConf 2018 keynote, I think, that was like the Captain Planet where you have all the different kind of things coming together. Rust can have brand new beginners, uh, you know, college professors, like people coming from C, people coming from Python. And a lot of teaching is that, to go back to what I said at the beginning, this idea of translations, like find out where you are and then how to connect it to where you need to go. And so depending on I think the first thing to know is like figure out kind of like reflect on like 
where you're coming from as a developer. There's a fair number of really cool, like, I know there was like a Rust for Rubyists project for a while, Rust for JavaScript folks. Like, look for some of those bridge technologies. I think a lot of communities now kind of have the like, you know, those are the JavaScript people who are like interested in Rust now. Um, and they tend to have really, Yash Whites, for example, as a really great introduction to Rust for JavaScript developers that I think is okay. great. Um, but then I know at least like, I think the book does a really good job of introducing, and by the book, I guess I mean book.rustlang.org. It's like the official book, it's free. You can buy a paper copy, proceeds go to charity. Um, but I think it does a really good job of introducing the like, primary concepts, but I think nothing really beats like having a toy project that you just kind of build in all the languages yeah. you learn and like trying it out. Um, and this used to be, I think, like a really tough thing, particularly for web developers, of which there's many, because like, I want to build a website in Rust was, you know, <laughs> just a couple of years ago, kind of painful. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were some some great early actors like the Rocket Project that I thought was really, I mean, continues to be really cool. Um, but that story has just gotten so fantastic today with especially improvements in async um, that, you know, whatever the thing is that you like to build, like try and build it in Rust. And that's usually the fastest track to like figuring it out. Is there a Rails or Rust concept? Is there a a good simple or Sinatra, I should say Sinatra for Rust is probably better because is there a short, simple stack for uh, network access and sending things back and forth on the pipe that's really easy comparatively to use? Or is yeah. it just Rust is really friendly to, to, to hook into for network access and such? Yeah, so this is a very complicated question to answer kind of hilariously. Like my brain is like going through this whole like decision yeah, right. tree. Um, so I really did like the, like, I think the Rocket project, and I think they've improved this. Rocket, I think, was probably the closest to kind of like looking like a Sinatra um, and was the earliest, but it relied on uh, nightly features. Rust has three release channels. Um, oh, okay. And so figuring out, I mean, again, Rust comes with a version manager, switching channels is like, easiest in Rust than I've seen it in many other languages, but it, that can still be a stumbling block. And also nightly is every night. So like, who knows yeah. you wake up and now your stuff's broken. Um, right. But uh, I think they fixed that. The reason they depended on nightly features is, uh, so Rust has macros and Rocket uses macros to really like eliminate boilerplate and kind of generate everything for you. There, there are lots of other ones though. And so, you could really pick any one that I kind of have my eye on is Axum, A-X-U-M. Uh, that's coming out of the Tokyo ecosystem. So Tokyo was one of the earliest ecosystem movers in async. So um, they've been doing that for a while. Uh, they have a request library, uh, Q-W-E-S-T. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, those folks and there, the, there's many people working on it today. But uh, Carl and Sean were some of the first people who started it, and they were just really fantastic folks. Um, and I also know uh, there. I forget. I don't know if Tide is still, um, but there's 
There's truly a lot. I think there's, I would say find the tutorial that you are most motivated by and use what that tutorial suggests you use. Um, this is a really fast moving spot in Rust and like this is immediate technical debt for like if someone watching this in like six months probably they'll be like why did she say that right now um, I gotta change something else yeah exactly no yeah exactly uh so now, the reason I asked is because like you know you look at like R Ruby wouldn't have gotten where it was I think without Rails catapulting it along for everyone to have a really useful server and then you've got um you know on the on the Python side you've got it's ones which are now escaping me at the moment, um, you know, and we got spring for the Java world. But so it sounds like there's a lot of innovation going on right now. Not any one of them is one, so to speak, in terms of having a, a large bevy of users that everyone's switching over to yet, but there's a lot of choice. Um, well, I mean, I think there's a and few that, that that's people my are really switching over to, but it's mm -hmm. controversial. So another one that yeah. I think is really fantastic was a project called Actix. Um, and it had Actix Web. I, I say was just because there was some controversy and this would be a whole nother live stream, but like, what does unsafe in Rust mean and why do people oh. get spicy about it? Um, so, and I don't think that the way that played out in the community was particularly great, but it was a really great project and tons of people use it. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think what we're seeing I think what we're seeing in the like network library ecosystem in Rust is kind of like a clash of tastes and trade-offs. Um, Rust has in general been really good at centralizing on things like um, even with error handling, usually like there's been tons of experimentation in the ecosystem, but usually kind of there's not like two fighting each other usually like one will happen everyone's like this is great but it, it, it could be improved and then another one will come out and we're like great that's the improvement you'll see a lot of just transition to that one whereas i think in the web ecosystem and it's not surprising to me because the web has always been kind of a spicy place right um people make different trade-offs about what matters to them and like web as far as web developers is a really diverse space um so i i think that we I mean, there was always like this desire to potentially even promote, uh, you know, one of these things to the Rust standard library because we'd love to centralize things if it's it makes discovery of stuff so much easier. But there's some some really distinct tastes out there, and I think just picking one, like I don't think there's ever going to be one right answer. So. I think much like like people talk about you know JavaScript and framework fatigue and things all change there and they often attribute that to JavaScript developers being hype machines and just loving the new next thing. But I I think I have a different perspective, which is just how the web gets used, where you draw trade-offs, and why. I think. I think there are several good right answers and everyone's just kind of circling around those going back and forth between them, um, trying to figure that out. So, and I, yes. so I think we'll see a lot of experimentation in rest there for a super long time. Um, but I, I think it's generally really positive. <laughs> it's funny. It's, it's same with this, you said SPA fatigue, but and a lot of people have uh, started off in tools like, you know, they had like, uh, 
jQuery and then a lot of hand-built frameworks and then Angular came along and a lot of people said, that's it's a framework. It gets a lot of stuff done for me. But then other people were like, you know what? We really just want a component library. So React came about. And then Vue came along and said, why don't you both? And your head explodes. You're like, why so many of these things? So it's just, it's fun to watch how these things evolve for sure. Well, Ashley, thank you so much. I think this has been a really useful uh, talk, at least for me anyway, and hopefully for our viewers um, as a good adjunct for your talk. Uh, if you attended ETE, you'll see uh, her talk uh, within the next week or so online uh, and everyone else will get it in, in about a month or so. Uh, and then this is a good kind of thing to hitch along with it and take a look at some other things we didn't have time for in the actual ETE presentation. But Ashley, thanks so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And I'm just really excited to see more people get excited about Rust. Um, I think it's, it's a really fun project. Uh, and I hope people not only use it, but also consider kind of getting involved in the process of building it. <laughs> thanks so much. All right, bye.